Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we feature everybody's favorites, food, music, and film. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and I'll explore Decolonize Your Diet with authors Luz Calvo and Catriona Rueda Esquivel. We're life partners. When Luz was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2006, they both radically changed their diets and began seeking out recipes featuring healthy vegetarian Mexican foods. They are passionate about the idea that Latinos in the United States need to ditch the fast food and return to their culture's food roots, both for physical health and spiritual fulfillment. We'll also feature an interview by Edgardo Servano Soto, who speaks with the director of the film East of Salinas about undocumented youth and migrant education. Produced with love by Vanessa Bohm, Edgardo Servano Soto, Nina Serrano, and myself, Julieta Kuznir. Listen and enjoy. Bienvenidos. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. On today's program, we're really excited. This is the time of the year where we get to talk about love, family, people coming together. And we have a beautiful book that has been the center of many conversations in my life. It seems like everyone in my world is talking about it. And we're just really excited about it. You probably have it already on your kitchen table or on your bookshelf or somewhere where it can be displayed because it's half art, half cookbook. But I'm talking about, if you haven't figured it out already, Decolonize Your Diet, a beautiful, beautiful book that just came out very recently, Plant-Based Mexican-American Recipes for Health and Healing. And I have in the studio with me live, I have Luz Calvo and Catriona Rueda Esquivel. Thank you both so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So we are here to talk about a book that I think has not only captured what so many people are thinking and talking about, which is how do we eat the food we love, the food our families raise us with that was made with so much love, and how do we do in a way that's respectful to the earth in terms of thinking about this in a sustainable way? How do we do this in a way that's really giving us strength and taking advantage of the healing properties of food? And how do we do this in a way that builds community? And you two spent a long time, and really this book is based around so much love that you two have for each other and the love you have for food and community. I'd like to hear from both of you. There's a beautiful part, the introduction of the book, where you both tell your stories around food and about um, your love of reaching and digging into how to build a healthier world through food. So this was a huge undertaking. So um, what were some of the sparks that really got this fire going? This is Catriona, and we've been working on this project since, I think, 2007. That's when we started actually saying, although we usually didn't tell people out loud, we usually like covered our mouths and said, we're really writing a cookbook. But that's when we started thinking about ancestral Mexican foods and their health-giving benefits. I'm, my family's from northern New Mexico, and my father grew up on the ranch, and his mother had, you know, a little garden patch and grew food, and she raised baby chicks to feed her family. And the meat that they were growing, at, the meat that they were eating at that time was grass-fed, free-range beef. And, you know, the people from that area lived very long lives, but my father's family migrated to Denver and then to Wyoming and then to Los Angeles. And his generation has a whole lot of health problems, including diabetes, high blood pressure, things like that. And so I was really struck by the difference between his mother's generation, where they lived to their 90s, and then my parents' generation and not my generation, where people live, you know, in much less great health, um, have more health problems, and don't live as long. And so 
so I was just sort of thinking, like, what is it about the food that has changed during these generations? And then I guess at a more personal level, in, in 2006, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, one thing that after treatment I was left with was a lot of concern about food and actually a lot of fear of food, a lot of fear that maybe something I had eaten had contributed to the cancer. And so that sparked a lot of research. Of course, we're both professors, so that's how we respond to our questions or our crises is to start doing research. And I right away came across this study that was published in 2005 of Latinas and breast cancer in the Bay Area. What the findings were so surprising to me, it found that Latinas born in the United States had a 50% higher risk of breast cancer than Latinas who were quote-unquote foreign-born. So that led me to more research where I found out that it's very commonly known among public health scholars that Latino immigrants have better health than their U.S.-born children. And so... In the research itself, there's very little concrete research that food may be the cause of what they call the Latino immigrant health paradox. And of course, it's a paradox because Latino immigrants in general are of a lower socioeconomic class, don't have access to health care, work in very dangerous conditions, live in communities where they might not have access to places to exercise and so forth. So... It's a paradox to these researchers. How can they be in such good health? And to us, when we started thinking about it, we started thinking, well, what if it was food? And so then that led us to start really researching some of these ancestral foods and finding that, indeed, some of these ancestral foods like nopales, um, like quelites and verdolagas, like beans— all had these tremendous health benefits, which over time, um, there was even a study done on the consumption of beans among Latinos, you know, as one social class increases, the fewer beans people tend to eat. And that went right along with the decline in health, right? So it just all came together for us. And then, I mean, I really want to emphasize as well that what led us to this project was the fact that as I was recovering personally, I was getting greater and greater pleasure in growing my own food and preparing food. And it's really, ultimately, we get so much pleasure from eating. I get a lot of pleasure from eating. And that it's that excitement over the food that made us feel like, no, we have to share this. We can't keep this to ourselves. It's so beautiful. It's so good. It's so life-affirming. It's bringing us so much meaning and pleasure and sense of connection to each other, to our communities, to our ancestors, that this is really a project that's just really waiting to be written. That's the voice of Luz Calvo. She is here with her partner, Catriona Rueda Esquivel. They're both professors. They're also writers of many different things. It's this latest project is called Decolonize Your Diet, and that's what we're here to talk about today, plant-based Mexican-American recipes for health and healing. And that last word, healing, really rings true throughout because I think that the food is medicine refrain really comes to power where you actually, as you mentioned in all this research, I'm a public health person as well, and the whole Latino health paradox thing just always really upset me. I'm like, what? why are people thinking that it's surprising that we were healthier before? I mean, it makes sense. When you both really dug into 
what makes food medicine and what can we do to make our food more healing. Something that just came up time and time again was this idea of community and looking at this from a macro perspective, looking at this from a social justice perspective, not just individually, okay, buy organic, but what can we do on a larger scale? And part of that, I think, is the fact that you've woven in all this incredible, incredible art into the book by people that we love so much. We've had Dignidad Reverde, Fabiana Rodriguez has been in the studio with us many, many times, and so many other countless wonderful artists that you have here in the book. Why don't you two talk a little bit about why it was so important to not just leave food in the kitchen, but really talk about organizing and building a better world? I think one thing is that, you know, because we are both ethnic studies professors and we both had interdisciplinary training. And so we've always incorporated like Chicano and Latino art in the way that we make our arguments and in the way we conceptualize things. So whether you're thinking of like Esther Hernandez's Sun Mad Raisins as an argument for organic foods and rights for farm workers, or you're looking at, you know, contemporary work like Fabiana Rodriguez's Grow Your Own World. Art is one way to get people to make those connections without it having to be like an an elaborate argument. The work that we're doing is not something we're doing in isolation. Obviously, there's people all over the country, all over the world doing work on reclaiming ancestral foods. And those can be like Native Hawaiian people and American Indian people, African-American people, like all different all different groups are trying to reclaim their ancestral foods and all ancestral foods are inherently healthy. And so we, you know, we are particularly doing it in this project, but the artists themselves are already doing it and have been doing it, especially as they're fighting for, you know, fair treatment for agricultural workers or non-GMO crops or different aspects of the food system and the injustices in the food system. That's the voice of Catriona Rueda Esquivel, and she's talking to us about this beautiful book, Decolonize Your Diet. You just mentioned reclaiming ancestral foods, and there's so much shame that we feel. I've, I work in public health, and every time I give a training around food justice issues, where we're talking about access to healthy foods and the amount of liquor stores and corner stores in a neighborhood, and I'm working with families from Latin America, I'm working primarily with moms, moms will turn to me and say, well, we really just shouldn't feed our kids so many tortillas. That's what we shouldn't be doing. And it just goes to blame and guilt and feeling shame around, well, if we just stayed away from all this rice, then we'd be okay. And it just always breaks my heart because there's so much internalized racism and self-hate in this sense that, well, what's wrong is our food just is wrong. So you two tackle that on so many levels and cooking in general is of course an act of resistance and self-love. There's so many stories within this book with each recipe, but why don't you two tell us about how you took a recipe that maybe was something that when you were growing up, you're like, ugh, that's nothing special or that's just my mom's plain old whatever and how you really grew to kind of appreciate it and see it in its whole entirety. Well, both Katrina and I grew up with families that made tamales around Christmas time. And when we got together, we had long discussions about what was an authentic tamal. You know, like, what is the, you know, what is the real correct, proper way to make a tamal? And because we have regional differences among ourselves, you know, we had pretty strong differences of opinion. And so one of the things we started to research was, well, what, What is the history of the tamal? You know, how far does it date back? What were some of the stuffings of the tamal? And what were some of the different ways that a tamal was made? And we actually went to the codices. And in the Florentine codices, and I want to read a passage to you and to your listeners, 
we found a really elaborate discussion of the many, many different kind of tamales that existed. And it's translated as he, but it also has the text in Nahuatl. And Nahuatl actually does not have a gendered pronoun, to my understanding. So I'm going to render the he as they, the singular they, gender neutral. So in the description, they say, they sell meat tamales, turkey pasties, plain tamales, barbecued tamales, those cooked in an olla. They burn within grains of maize with chili, tamales with chili burning within Fish tamales, fish with grains of maize, frog tamales, frog with grains of maize, acoloto, which is a kind of salamander, with grains of maize, tadpoles with grains of maize, mushroom with grains of maize, tuna cactus with grains of maize. Then they go on, gopher tamales, tasty, tasty, very tasty, very well made, always tasty, savory, of pleasing order, a very pleasing odor, made with pleasing odor, very savory. Where it is tasty, it has chile, salt, tomatoes, gourd seeds, shredded, crumbled, juiced. And this cadence of the Florentine codices, we just find so beautiful and so inspiring. And this cadence goes for all their descriptions of what they found in the marketplace, in the Mexica marketplace. But it always ends after the description of the good tamal with the bad. And so I want to read, the bad tamale seller is they who sell filthy tamales, discolored tamales, broken, tasteless, quite tasteless, inedible, frightening, deceiving tamales made with chaff, swollen tamales, spoiled tamales, foul tamales, sticky, gummy, old tamales, cold tamales, dirty and sour, very sour, exceedingly sour, stinking. And it's just like so friggin' beautiful. We, we really struggled with how to render that in our book, the cadence and the beauty of these original descriptions. And we always fell short until Catriona decided that she would write me a poem. And so she's going to read the poem that she wrote me. I've realized that loose is like the tamale vendor in the codices. They make tamales with jack cheese and green chile nuevo mexicano and sweet corn with goat cheese, lemon zest, and black olives, with butternut squash, rajas, and queso Oaxaca. They make vegan tamales, tamales with chipotle and potato, with green chile and pumpkin, with hongos, cremenis, maitakes, shiitake, oyster. They make sweet tamales with blackberries, with chocolate, they warm, they incite, with dried piña and cranberries, with sweet beans and sweet spices. Their masa is organic, is hand-ground, uses white corn, uses blue corn, has sweet corn kernels, has chia seeds, has herb leaves, is flavored with broth, is flavored with oolong tea, is flavored with jamaica, is flavored with flowers of yerbanis. They serve their tamales with sauces, with blackberry sauce for sweet tamales, with fig jam for goat cheese tamales, with chile colorado for savory tamales. The bad tamale maker forgets to salt the masa, oversalts the masa, spreads the masa too thick, they are masudos, overcooks the tamales, they are dry, their skin is rubbery, forgets the steamer on the stove, and the pot boils dry, the hojas are burnt. Beautiful. So some of the work that I think we're trying to do with these descriptions is to break free of this notion of the one authentic tamal. And, you know, in our communities, a lot of times we think that the authentic tamal has beef or pork and red chile. And 
And, I mean, obviously, before the conquest, there was no beef or pork. So we want to break open these categories and, like, empower people to be creative as obviously cooks were creative back, you know, before colonization to stuff their tamales with what they had available. And it's really a resquache aesthetic that we try to embrace and put forward. That is the art of making do with what you have to create something that's tasty, very, very tasty, you know, and that's the joy and the pleasure that we have and that we want to bring and share as we disseminate our book. And I also think that a lot of pe- different people are trying to make their foods more healthy. And so when you have a family member who's a vegetarian or you have a family member who's vegan, everybody gives them a lot of hell about like, oh no, that's not the way we make tamales. We've always made tamales this way. And so it's really fun to sort of say, actually, no, you know, tamales have always been made all these different ways. And this time, like Luce's father used to come up with like, oh, let's make one with dried piña and cranberries. Or their family has a sweet bean tamale that they always made. And my family was always like, ooh, beans for breakfast. That sounds gross. Why would you make beans with the dessert? But the sweet bean tamal is like the perfect sort of breakfast tamal. It's sweet, but it's not too sweet. It's spiced. It has raisins. And those kinds of flavors, it's just really exciting to sort of be exposed to different flavors and different profiles and to put different things together. So some people are very sort of sneering about, oh, tamales shouldn't be like that. Tamales shouldn't be like that. In fact, actually, Mexican-Americans get made fun of a lot because we say tamale singular, like I want a tamale. And and the people who are in their proper Spanish are like, oh, no, you say tamal. You know, you don't say singular tamale. But then like the word tamal, tamales, they come from the Nahuatl and the singular word is tamale. So, you know, we just sort of want to like laugh a little more and embrace those kind of things that it's sort of like historical connection that people don't necessarily have. We want to kind of embrace them and joke around with them and play with them. That's the voice of Catriona Rueda Esquivel. She is here with her co-author, Luz Calvo, and they have written this wonderful book, Decolonize Your Diet. So this book has just come out, but it's had such a wonderful reception. And you two have partnered with incredible people. Bryant Terry, who is very known and loved across the country, but especially here in the Bay, he actually wrote the foreword, I believe, right? The foreword of the book. Right. And he was at the release as well. And people just have been coming together, and my Facebook feed is filled with people's images of meals that they've cooked out of the book. So why don't you two tell us a little bit about now you two have birthed this book. It's out in the world. What's happened now? I mean, I think for me, what's been so surprising is to see the Facebook feed with the photos of people actually cooking the recipes. And I was reflecting on that this morning and I was thinking, you know, I often buy cookbooks because I love cookbooks. I love to look through cookbooks. I love to look for inspiration. I love the pictures. I mean, I love food. I love like seeing a photograph. I love that feeling. But honestly, I often buy a cookbook and then never cook a recipe out of it. And I thought that this would be more of a gesture, but to see people actually taking it into their kitchens and cooking out of it has just been so beautiful. And then sharing their renditions. And, you know, we've always said yes to the Resquatch aesthetic. Yes, take this recipe and make it your own. And to see that that's what people are doing. One of my students today said, oh, I made your quinoa stew recipe or your caldo de quinoa, but I didn't have any quinoa, so I used lentils. And I said, bravo, that was so, and she was like, it was so good. And I was like, that's exactly, you know, the kind of creativity that I want us to be embracing. We were also having a discussion today about gender and cooking and our our argument that we need to liberate the kitchen. 
said in order for labor to be free, it has to be creative. It can't be following rules. And so just seeing that as it's playing out has been just really super gratifying. And I think just the sort of idea about like liberating the kitchen I wanted to talk about a little bit because for you know for a lot of women being in the kitchen has meant being restricted being limited to the kind of roles they could do and the kind of work they could do so for many women it was very restrictive but there's a researcher her name is Meredith Abarca and she did um, research with her own family as a matter of fact interviewing different Mexican Mexican American women about what they thought about the kitchen and so her mother had a really sort of concrete memory about when she got her first kitchen kitchen because before then she'd had to live with her in-laws and you know it was uncomfortable and she didn't have her own space but then when they moved out her husband built her her own kitchen and she was like I finally had a space of my own I finally had a space I could create and she had so much pride in that and then when you know when there were financial changes and they lost that home she missed having her own kitchen so she has this really sort of powerful associations of the kitchen as a site of creativity a site of personal empowerment a site of sort of defining your own family. And then her daughter will say, you know, my ideal house in the kitchen, it would have a jacuzzi. It would have a hot tub because she hates cooking and she doesn't want to cook. And so she just, when she imagines her ideal, she's like, I would never want to be in the kitchen. And how, you know, those kinds of things can go on in the same family. And so for some people, it's like, yes, I want to be able to cook. I want to be able to create. And for others and for boys, you know, who are being told like, oh, that's not manly. You shouldn't be in the kitchen. You shouldn't be with the women. You know, they were stigmatized for that and they were scolded for that and they they were supposed to be shamed by that and the the idea is that you know now we should be able to make our own spaces and decide what we want to do and what roles we want to take up so if Luce wants to cook these amazing creative meals you know I'm really blessed to be able to eat them you know my part of that is then to sort of clean up afterwards and just to provide support to do chopping as a sous chef if that's what Luce needs or to clean up afterward or to go to the store with the list and get the three other things that we need for this dish to make it work but to recognize that and, and to share the labor equally. I think also for a lot of activists, there's, if you look at some of the histories of activist movements there in the Chicano movement, for example, there were women who were always, you know, always participating, always working, but their work was often discredited and they were, you know, sort of limited to, oh yeah, you need to bring the coffee, you need to bring the food. So that meant that both the work of preparing the food wasn't valued and then the other work that they were doing was not recognized. And so we really want to say like everybody should be bringing food. You know, if you're having an activist meeting at five in the afternoon and everybody's been at work or everybody's been at school and then you get together in this meeting, everybody's tired. Everybody needs to be charged up. So somebody should bring a pot of beans and somebody should should bring some Nopales salad and someone should make Awe de Jamaica and then everybody in the community will be fortified and be strengthened to be able to go on with the struggle. And that touches on a lot of important themes that come out through the book, which is oftentimes we have the cultural work that we do and the activism we do is pitted against each other. And oftentimes things that are revolve around healing and self-care and self-love, those are almost seen as frivolous or, you know, we don't have time for that. We live in a society where people are being murdered day in, day out. We have families being divided. We have people being denied the care they need. And we have racism and manifesting every single way that we can imagine. So took on this project that really looks at both things. Like, how do we look at this from a societal level and how do we look at it on a personal level? And this book builds a bridge between looking at the activist world and the personal activism that we all need to do. So how do you two tackle that important question? For one thing, I think we all have to 
realize that we're in this for the long haul, right? And sure, there are sprints at times where we do, and including us, or especially me, like we'll let go of my good routines for short-term campaigns. But since we are in this for the long haul, we really need to build webs of community where the work of supporting the activists is always there and the activists supporting themselves and each other through healthy food and just changing the culture. I mean, I was involved in some of the organizing that happened out of Occupy and a lot of the meetings that happened at dinner time were a lot of junk food. And certainly at, you know, Cal State campuses, you know, where we're working pretty much in the trenches when they're trying to get us to do extra work, it's like really poor quality food. And so like having to change the culture around that is really difficult and slow work. But I think it's work that's really important for all of us and to realize that when we're eating food that's highly processed or junk food, we're contributing to an overall supporting a food system that's literally killing us and killing our communities. So how we can start to disinvest from those kinds of foods and wean ourselves off those kind of foods. And it's definitely a process. And is, I think, to start pushing the healthy spaces and the healthy foods. So we're really not about saying don't eat this or don't eat that, but instead trying to make the alternatives so attractive and life-affirming that people are naturally drawn to them. I think community gardens and growing your own food is a really important space of claiming land in our communities. And so creating those spaces and defending those spaces, I think, is important activist work. I think a lot of times we spend a lot of time fighting the system, which some of that energy is important, but other energy should be put into creating the world that we want to live in. And that world should be growing healthy foods in our communities, sharing foods in our communities, preparing ways to feed people who are hungry in our communities. So that kind of more direct action of creating autonomous spaces, especially around food, and obviously a lot of that work is going on in, the, in our area, which is great. So expanding those spaces and supporting those spaces is work that, that we're interested in, that we hope we have highlighted in our book. I also think about like how immigrant communities have sort of traditionally valued like whole foods, right? You know, they wouldn't be wasting their money on the processed food. They would be like, okay, let's make this caldos from scratch because we can afford the onions or the potatoes or the the chiles or the beans. And then I was also just sort of remembering for a while I lived in Denver and there was a Catholic parish there, Arli Guadalupe Parish. And every year they had this like big winter festival and they had a big raffle and the top prize was cash. But the second prize, which is the one I always wanted to win, was like 50 pounds of beans and 50 pounds of dried chile and all these like sort of dried food that would nourish your family all through the winter. And I thought that was just like so inspiring to think about like, yeah, you know, you use the raw materials and you create this great gourmet cuisine as opposed to buying the little box of something that's on the corner or the pre-prepared you know food that the chain stores are selling yeah to recognize the history in our communities the long history in our communities of those survival skills because some of these things have become trendy obviously that we're talking about but that our communities have always 
grown food in gardens in the backyard or the front yard, you know. It's not uncommon in our community in the Fruitvale to see people growing corn in their front yard and have often kept backyard chickens. And so even though this is a thing that maybe has become trendy in the so-called, you know, urban homesteading movement, to really claim these as our own, as, as knowledge that comes from our ancestors and that has been practiced for generations in our community as a way of surviving and connecting to the land and connecting to each other and building community. So one really important theme that maybe that we haven't hit on yet is the strengths that exist in our communities and especially among our immigrant communities. And that we hope in our book to highlight those strengths, to see that this ancestral knowledge exists, it's valuable, and that this is something that needs to be disseminated and defended especially in the context of so much anti-immigrant hysteria and the devaluing of immigrant people in this country. So that's really one underlying theme that's really very important to us. We don't think we invented the wheel or that we discovered anything. You know, this knowledge is out there. What we're trying to do is use our platform that we have to disseminate it and We don't really think we have much to teach immigrant communities. It's their children who we have in our classrooms who might not realize the value of the knowledge that their parents and their grandparents have. And so our greatest joy is when we teach our students something and then they go home, they talk about it, and they come back to the classroom and it's like, oh, yes, profa, you're right. Like, my mom totally always used to fry up verdolagas when we lived in Mexico. She knows what they are. And that's really the joy that we get of, you know, reviving. It's more of a revival of knowledge that already exists. And I also think that anti-immigrant propaganda really focuses a lot about this sort of fear that immigrants are going to come and take, take, right? And this whole fantasy about that. And one of the things that we're really trying to connect with is the fact that immigrants who come bring so much. And I mean, not only do they come in very good health, right, but they have good, strong health traditions. And so much about what Americanization is, is trying to strip that away. And that's not something new, you know, that's not something that's coming about now in 2015. It is going on. But it was going on 100 years ago in 1915. And in, ni- in the 1920s, they had Americanization programs and they were working really hard to get Mexican immigrants to stop eating Mexican food and start eating American foods. And there was an underlying motive to that, which is that they wanted to turn Mexican women into domestic workers for white women, for middle class white women. And to do that, they needed the, them to be cooking white food. But the idea was that they were telling people, oh, you need to stop feeding your families what you're feeding them and everything that that we can now identify as signs of health were then identified as signs of backwardness so eating beans was discouraged eating corn tortillas was oh no you sh- they actually even there was a, even a thing where they said you know if mexican children are eating a corn tortilla for breakfast then they come to school and they see their anglo classmates eating a meat sandwich then they're going to be filled with 
envy and dissatisfaction with their role in life, and they're going to turn to a life of crime, and they're going to become criminals precisely because they were eating corn tortillas. And so that's why you need to stop feeding your children corn tortillas. I mean, it's totally crazy the way that that ideology was working, but that is what they were saying. Um, some of the other things were that everybody in the family would sit down together and eat the same food, whether you were an elder or you were an infant, you were eating the same food. Now, that might mean you're like your mom chopped it up or your mom chewed it for you, but you were still eating the same beans as the viejitas were eating. And the, that was inherently healthy. And now, you know, in 2015, they're saying like, oh, baby should be eating baby food and seniors should be eating Ensure and and adults should be eating prepackaged processed foods. And none of those things are real food. And when we were all eating real food, we were inherently healthier. We're talking about the book, Decolonize Your Diet. And I have in the studio with me, Luz Calvo. You just heard the voice of Catriona Rueda Esquivel. She's breaking down some of the ways that this book is actually a love letter to ancestors, to bisabuelas, to all the people that came before and all the lessons that maybe we weren't able to get from them, but now we can remember them and you know we all have it it's deep inside there somewhere it's muscle memory but it's just kind of uncovering all that so we've talked a little bit about how wonderfully this book has been received but it's kind of taken on a life of its own so what's happening now I know you two have officially launched the book um, what's happening with this project well, one thing is that the first printing of the book was actually quite quite small. It was a 4,000 printing, and that has pretty much already sold out, and we're going into our second printing, which is really amazing. I mean, it hasn't, it's barely been out a month. And when we were putting this book out, when we were working on it, when we were pitching it to publishers, a lot of publishers really couldn't see what we were doing or why we were doing it. In large part, because we're teachers and we teach ethnic studies, like we were visioning a Latino audience for our book. And the publishers are like, there is no such thing as a Latino audience for cookbooks. And, you know, they want, they want to sell the mainstream cookbook authors and their Mexican cookbooks. And what's been so gratifying and exciting is Zach actually, that we are seeing that community that we knew was there. We were seeing that interest that we knew were there and that there were people who were wanting recipes like this. And so for us, that's been just sort of really both gratifying and encouraging. And, you know, it's made us very happy. And I think, you know, we're doing community presentations. We've done quite a few in uh, in this area. And so we're planning slowly because we both have full-time jobs, but to continue doing presentations in Southern California next. And then hopefully we'll do a little tour around the Southwest because we do think that the audience is there and there's still people who don't know of our work. Of course, we're continuing our Facebook page and our Facebook presence where we can just on a whim post a recipe that we find or, you know, a call to action or an analysis of GMO crops or whatever's going on that day. And and that's always just a really good way to connect immediately to our audience and get feedback right away. And for right now, a lot of people are going to be going to big family holiday dinners. You know, one of my students said, well, what would be a good dish to take? And I was like, oh, wow, Luz, what would be a good dish for my student to take? And Luz is like, oh, wait, I got something in my mind. Let me think about it. Let me finish putting this recipe together and then I'll post it. And that's one of the really exciting things, I think, because when you're putting a book together, 
together. There's like a limited number of recipes you can have, and you can only have so many entrees, and you can only have so many soups. And with the Facebook group, we can just sort of like whatever we come up with and get excited about, we can put up right away. So your Facebook page is how I was first introduced to your work, and it's something that I have a lot of friends that you know are followers as well, and even my friends that maybe don't eat meat or dairy and feel uncomfortable a little bit identifying with vegan because it just doesn't feel right to them because it's not something they grew up with. Well, as soon as they heard the term decolonized diet, they're like, now that resonates. That's that's what I'm trying to do here. I think that a lot of times people are like Latino and vegan that can't go together. And obviously there are a lot of traditions here that predate our great, great grandparents. Some of the fun things that we've discovered in this process, one has been fermentation and I think, again, that that's something that's sort of like associated with like middle class white, you know, there's people making their own sauerkraut now. And we really learned a lot about fermentation in this. And one thing that really excited us was that all over Latin America and certainly all over Mexico, like the different kinds of fermented drinks like tepache and tesquino and tibicos, that there were these traditions of fermentation and even mainstream sources that know about that don't really get it. For example, there's there's a book called Nourishing Traditions, which really encourages fermenting your own foods. But all of the examples they give are drawn from a Euro-American tradition. So they'll say use whey, you know, dairy whey from when you make cheese. Use whey to start your fermentation of this. Use whey to start your fermentation of that. And people in the Americas did not live with dairy for thousands of years. And so nobody used whey in making their fermented foods. And so that's why it was like really important for us to sort of find out how they did it. You know, and things like curtido where, you know, like pupusas aren't pupusas unless you can put curtido on them. Just the amazing tanginess and zippiness. And then when you put chile in it and how all those flavors come together are just really exciting. Yeah, so we always have a batch now of cortido in the fridge that I've fermented from a, a red cabbage, and it's so tasty. And to put it on a taco, you know, it just completes a dish. There's so many ways to use it, and then it's bringing us so many beneficial probiotic properties. So yeah, I agree. The ferment was And a- like water kefir, right? That's that's something that like people are like, water kefir? Like I never heard of water kefir. But what one thing we learned when we were looking at this is that the granules that produce water kefir, which is like a fermented drink somewhere between a soda and a beer, I mean, you can make it with all different kinds of fruits, that the organism actually grows on nopales, that when nopales are grown above 7,000 feet, that this organism grows on it and that that's what you can use to make your water kefir. And again, that's just really amazing and exciting because we don't really learn about those kinds of things there you know each little area had their own kind of fermented drink that they made and none of them ever made it to you know the supermarket the same way that there's all these fermented drinks made from tunas from the fruit of the prickly pear but it's not commercialized because it's not stable like you can't bottle the wine and sell it at the marketplace but every little village had their own way of making it and it had its own flavor and everybody would be like oh so and so has the best one and so we really just sort of want to like find out more about that and share more about that because people don't really know people in the U.S. don't really know that those are our traditions and that we have those kinds of things. So I've been here with Luz Calvo and Catriona Rueda Esquivel. They are the authors of Colonize Your Diet, Plant-Based Mexican-American Recipes for Health and Healing. And you can follow them on Facebook. They have a wonderful 
page where you can get a whole bunch of recipes and great stuff. You can purchase their book at your local bookstore. There are a lot of local bookstores that are still carrying it now and it may run out, but they'll probably reorder. Is that right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So they'll get it back on the shelves. So you just have to be patient. I really appreciate both of you coming in and sharing with us. And I hope this is the first of a series of conversations on the healing properties of our traditional foods. Thank you so so much. Thank you for having us. I'm Edgardo Servando Soto, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA Radio. In the United States, there are currently 2 million undocumented children, children who are very much part of American society. Impacted by immigration policies, these undocumented children and their families must make life decisions in order to endure, and as a result, often sacrificing education, stability, and family. But what is lost when promising kids are denied opportunities through no fault of their own? East of Salinas, a documentary film screening on KQED on January 18th tells the story of third grader Jose Ansadlo growing and learning amid constant risk. We are joined today by Laura Pacheco, producer and director of East of Salinas. Thank you, Laura, for being on KPFA Radio. Oh, thank you for having me. East of Salinas takes a look at the intersection of immigration and education. The title of the film, East of Salinas, alludes to John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. Why Salinas, and how did you come across this topic? I was 
actually reading an article in the New York Times a number of years ago that actually profiled Oscar Ramos and looked at some of the work he was doing with migrant families in his community. And I was just really touched. I couldn't stop thinking about him. And I was really interested in what was going on with with the kids because we never hear about them. Sometimes you hear about farm justice, you hear about education, but not in the in the education of migrant children. And so I called Oscar up and I flew out. I'm on the East Coast. I flew out to California to meet him. And I, we took a walk around Salinas and, and I just knew I had a story. Oscar's an amazing character and Salinas is a really interesting place. Jose Saldo is undocumented, he's in the third grade, a high-achieving math student, and he comes from a migrant farm-working family. How does Jose's undocumented status and family's seasonal employment affect his education? That's a great question, and I think, you know, his immigration status affects his his schoolwork incredibly, but, but even more so is the fact that because his parents are seasonal farm workers, they are always moving from place to place, and so he never gets to stay in one place for the school year. So he, as you might see in the film, he starts out third grade in one school, he goes to another school. By the time he's in the fifth grade, he's been to seven schools, and, you know, that takes a toll academically, and it takes a real toll Socially, you know, it's hard to make friends every time you have a new kid. East of Salinas is set in California. How widespread is migrant education and migrant families throughout the nation? When I first started looking at it, obviously Oscar works in Salinas, so that's where we went. But when I started researching the issue and talking to a number of people who are, you know, experts in this field, and I am not, first of all, there's migrant education programs through all the con- set up throughout the entire country. But there are so many communities with migrant families living and and they just really are under the radar they don't get much of the support that is needed you know think about everywhere where food is coming from whether it's lettuce in salinas or you know beets in i think michigan or apples in washington state or milk in vermont or you know there's so many states in this country have seasonal farm workers and most of these farm workers are parents and they have kids just like jose the school that Jose is attending, the majority are from migrant um, mm-hmm. migrant families. Um, can you talk to us? How did you find Jose Ansaldo and his family? What was the process to getting to know them and having them involved in the documentary? Well, when we first started working with Oscar, he helped us identify a few families. Um, and our, actually, our original idea was to follow three different families and sort of see the different paths that their lives took. And we started doing that for the first few months. Um, and then as we were looking at our footage, we just realized we would have a much more powerful story if we just spent all that time with one family and really were able to be with them in an intimate way and get to know them and, you know, get them to trust us and really open up to us. And we decided on Jose's family um, for a number of reasons. One, because Jose, you know, was only eight when we started filming him, and he was very articulate for an eight-year-old. As filmmakers, we're looking for someone who could articulate their own ideas, and his family was just really open to us, and we were, of course, open with them, saying what we were doing and why we thought it was important, and of course, because they were undocumented, you know, getting their permission and making sure that they fully understood what we were trying to do. And I think Jose's family really supported the project. They do support the project. I think they feel like it's so important that, um, you know, their lives their lives get seen and, and people have a deeper understanding of what life as a migrant farm worker is like. 
I'm Edgardo, and this is La Raza Chronicles on KPFA, and I'm speaking to director Laura Pacheco about her film East of Salinas. Jose is part of a mixed-status family. Laura, can you tell us what is a mixed-status family? A mixed-status family is uh, a family where some members of the family uh, have legal right to be in the United States. They may hold a green card or be documented, and some members of the family do not have those papers, so they would be considered undocumented. And in this case, Jose is undocumented while his two siblings are U.S. citizens. The film follows Jose and his family for three years. How does being a mixed-status family begin to affect Jose's understanding of himself in relation to his family and the U.S.? You know, it was interesting because when we first started filming, as, as we know, Jose was only eight. And, you know, as most eight-year-olds, his ideas are really simple. You know, he wants to be a policeman or a fireman, and he loves his family. And he doesn't really understand that he's different. But as the film progresses, you know, he starts to sort of shed his naive views of the world. So, you know, three-quarters of the way through the film, his brother and sister go to Mexico for the summer. They go to spend the summer with... Um, his mother's grandmother, or his grandmother, and Jose has to stay at home. And so, you know, with both parents working from sunup to sundown in the field, and Salinas being, you know, a, a fairly violent city, he sits inside all day by himself, and he starts to realize, you know, I'm t- at some level I'm trapped. I can't go and come back. I can't go with the rest of my family here. I can't go to visit my grandmother you know, so that's one way. And I think the other way has to do with health care. So his older brother and his younger sister have access to Medicaid, and he does not. So as his mother says in the film, you know, it's a good thing Jose is never sick. East of Salina clearly depicts how vulnerable migrant families are to threats of unemployment, illness, deportations, poverty, all factors that destabilize the family. And so where do migrant families like Jose's family find support. I mean, it felt very much that they were reacting to so many of these these threats. So where did migrant families find support? What is the government's role and where, if any, does the community step in? I mean, I can tell you just from, from a, being a filmmaker and what I witnessed after being in Salinas for three years was that because there are so many migrant families in this community and because the majority of them are undocumented, they're very supportive of one another and there are a lot of resources set up for migrant communities and for undocumented families in Salinas. But I think one of the biggest issues, at least that we saw, was that, you know, they're often on the outskirts of town, and even something as simple as transportation is often really hard for families. So many people don't have cars, so there there might be services, you know, six miles out of town, but six miles is really far away if you don't have a car, or if gas prices are really high. We saw families making the decision to not go to for example, a church that was offering a free clothing swap because they didn't want to spend the money on gas. So again, I think that's why, you know, teachers like Oscar are, are just imperative to be in the community because not only is he a teacher, he's just, you know, he's like a beacon of hope and a, and a resource for, for the community. I'm Edgardo Cervando Soto, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA Radio. We are joined today by Laura Pacheco, producer and director of East of Salinas. Oscar Ramos is the third grade teacher for Jose, and he was also once a migrant farm kid himself. How significant is a teacher like Oscar Ramos um, to undocumented and migrant children? I think Oscar is essential in the lives in so many ways to kids like Jose and all of the kids that come through his classroom. 
Because he knows what their life is like. And I think because he lived that life, he can really help these kids fill in the gaps. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that Jose and many other kids, you know, in in his circumstance are living with is just uncertainty. You know, they don't know who's going to be home when they come home from school. Most of the time it's no one. Um, they don't know if they're, what they're going to have for dinner. They don't know if they'll be moving houses or apartments, if another family will be joining them. Everything is up in the air all the time. And I think Oscar is just, uh, you know, he's like a rock of stability in their life. And, you know, the kids really form a bond with him and trust him as well as, as many of the children's parents do. You know, one of the things that Oscar does just on his free time is translate uh, for parent-teacher conferences, for example because schools don't offer the resources for bilingual parent-teacher conferences. And so, you know, every parent that we met, the only thing they want is for their child to have a better education than they did, to not grow up to working in the fields. And, you know, they're always there for parent-teacher conferences, but sometimes they just, you know, because of the language barrier, they're, they're not able to understand the resources that are available. And in the case of California's migrant education program, how is the migrant education program in California responding to the massive amounts of family who are migrating seasonally? From everybody I have talked with in the migrant education office, they're doing everything they can to make sure that these kids get extra help. So the migrant education office often will fund after-school programs and summer school programs, things to keep the kids engaged and, and frankly, busy while their parents are working. But I know, like most federally funded education programs, they're always coming up short um, on their finances and their budgets getting cut, which is a real shame because they do tremendous work. Laura, what else can people learn about migrant families and migrant education through viewing this film? What I hope the takeaway is, is that people really open their eyes. One, that we need an immigration reform in this country, because whether it's the 2 million kids or the 11 million, you know, in total people who deserve and, and have a right to be in this country, I feel like, you know, people just need to be given an opportunity. And whether it's a child like Jose or, you know, it's a migrant from Syria, that people start to make the connection that, we, you know, the United States is a better United States when we have diversity, when we have different skill sets being offered, when we have new ideas and new drive that, that comes into our country. And I think, to me, that's what's so poignant about Jose is that the only thing he wants to do is study math and go to school and get a good job as an engineer and give back to his family, give back to his community, give back to this country. And, you know, it's just a loss on so many levels if kids like Jose are denied that opportunity. Laura, tell us how people can see the film and how can they stay connected to, to the work around migrant families? Well, for the next month, um, East of Salinas is, of course, airing on the 18th in sort of the greater Bay Area and then afterwards will be available on PBS online for another month. And then starting in the spring, we will be trying to do screenings in migrant communities all over the country. There is the East of Salinas website on the PBS website. And I also have another website set up for updates on the film. Um, that's just eastofsalinas.com. You can stay connected to Jose. You can find out what's happening to him. You know, we spent four years with Jose's family, so I fully intend to stay connected and be there when he when he graduates from college. Thank you, Laura. Oh, thank you very much. It was much. really great speaking with you. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Laura Pacheco is the producer and director of East of Salinas, documentary film screening on KQED on January 18th. 
I'm Edgardo Salvano Soto, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA Radio. This is the La Raza Chronicles community calendar, the social media campaign to demand the immediate freedom of Oscar Lopez Rivera begins tomorrow, this January 6th, to celebrate Oscar Lopez Rivera's birthday. The National Boricua Human Rights Network launches a broad unitary social media campaign to help free Oscar Lopez Rivera as he enters his 35th year of prison. Oscar, a Bronze Star decorated Vietnam veteran, has never been charged or convicted of a violent crime, yet has served 12 years in solitary confinement. The Archbishop of Puerto Rico, six Nobel laureates, six presidents of Latin America, and all three tendencies in Puerto Rico and six members of the U.S. Congress have called for his release. This call to action for tomorrow, January 6, 2016, which is his birthday and Three Kings Day, a very popular holiday in Puerto Rico, comes as Barack Obama enters his last year in office and Oscar enters his 35th year of imprisonment the Puerto Rican people's longest-held political prisoner. On this day, the National Boricua Human Rights Network is calling on people to participate on Twitter and Facebook. They're asking people to send simple tweets with one voice to demand, Free Oscar Now. The message might be, Free Oscar Now, 34 years is too much. They want to get one million tweets. That's tomorrow, January 6th, Three Kings Day. On Sunday, January 16th, from 5 to 8 p.m., Acción Latina presents a reception for its exhibit, Cuba Libre, an exhibition of Cuban and American ceramics, prints, and photographs showing Cuban and U.S. artists. By working together, these artists have become ambassadors of goodwill with the hope of fostering peace and understanding through the international language of art. The exhibit is in the newly opened Juan R. Fuentes Gallery. That's 2958 24th Street between Harrison and Alabama Street in San Francisco. Acción Latina's new gallery is part of the effort to support Calle 24, 24th Street's cultural district, where Latino stories can be shared to educate and inspire the community. That's Sunday, January 16th from 5 to 8 to see Cuba Libre exhibit. Amigos y amigas de la comunidad nicaragüense y latinos amigos, les esperamos el próximo 16 de enero en el Centro Cultural de la Misión, donde estaremos acompañándoles desde Nicaragua, Luis Manuel Guadamuz y Marlene Álvarez, para conmemorar el centenario de la partida de nuestra gloria nacional, Rubén Darío. Recuerda, Centro Cultural de la Misión, 16 de enero. Ahí nos vemos. Gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you for listening to tonight's program. If you'd like to listen to this program again, you can go to our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles, and listen to this show as well as our past archives. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash La Raza Chronicles to find out more about the show. 
And if you have any story ideas, please email us any thoughts or events you think we should cover. Our email is lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. This has been Lajasa Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA Radio. Gracias y buenas noches. Thank you.